welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Have you ever had somebody say something to you that was supposed to be encouraging, helpful, um, clarifying, and it had the opposite effect? Um, like I remember when my wife was pregnant, four months pregnant with our firstborn, and she said to me one day, oh, she's like, I've gained so much weight and I don't even fit any of the new clothes I just bought last week. And I said, well, honey, you've got five more months to go, so you're probably going to get bigger. Now, listen, I have gotten I'm way better now. I know that was a dumb thing to say, but I thought it was helpful. It was clarifying, maybe encouraging. I don't know. Then when our firstborn was born and we're leaving the hospital, I'm carrying him around like he's a piece of porcelain. I'm already afraid that I'm going to break him and thinking like, are there any adults coming with us? Because surely nobody is trusting us with a life. And literally on the way to the hospital, the nurse says, oh, one more thing. Just don't just make sure he doesn't sleep the whole night on his back because he could stop breathing. I don't know if that was supposed to be help. I'm, I'm literally under his nose, like had a mirror under his nose at three in the morning in our room trying to see if it was fogging up to see if he was breathing. Not helpful. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> then I remember when I was making the decision to transition out of my career into being a pastor and I had lots of fear and trepidation about that. So I called my father who made a similar uh, transition when he was my age. And I said, dad, did you ever get to Sunday? Did you ever worry you were going to get to Sunday and not have anything to say? And any of you that know my dad know he thought he was being helpful when he said, only for the first five years. <laughs> okay, not helpful, right? Um, now, joking aside and everyday life aside, there are things that we say or that we hear that are meant to be helpful and encouraging and clarifying when blank happens. When pain, tragedy, loss difficulty, sickness, hardship, trauma happens. There are words that we say or that we hear others say that are meant to be encouraging, helpful, hopeful, clarifying, but often have the opposite effect. Now, before I get into what uh, some examples of what those words might be, um, <clears throat> we're talking about this because we are in a series called When Blank Happens. And we said last week, what goes in that blank eventually happens to every one of us in some way. Maybe in your past, maybe this is a part of your past, pain, loss, tragedy, sickness, setbacks, difficulties, trauma, um, something that you're still thinking about processing in the past, maybe something you're going through right now, or maybe something that you see coming, or we kind of just know it seems to happen to everyone, regardless of how old you are, how much money you have, how much education you have, what part of the world you live in, what family stage in, what life is, how healthy your body is. Every one of us at some point, that blank happens to us or to the ones we love. And when that happens, we are thrust into this place of having to wrestle with God, or certainly for people of faith, right? Or perhaps for many people, that's why they don't believe. I know many of my friends who don't believe, who say, I don't have a faith, or I don't go to church, or I can't, is because of the blank that happened to them or to their loved ones. And they can't make sense of it. And they can't make sense of God with it. They're like, I can't do this, I'm out. Or I could never believe in a God who would allow this or that. Perhaps you've said that. Perhaps you've heard that. Perhaps that's why you got off the faith train. This is a universal experience and wrestle for all of us, pain, suffering, loss, tragedy. 
but there's added complications for people of faith because it thrusts us into wrestling with faith in God. One of the reasons we're talking about this as a church is we say, hey, like, church is not a place you come because you have all your beliefs sorted out, because you have no doubt, right? That faith and doubt actually are a part, they're all mixed together in part of the journey. That this is not a place we come because we have no questions and we're the believers and all those other people, they're not the believers. No, faith is a place we come because we have questions, because we are wrestling with God through pain and suffering. And we know we need to do that and we need to be a part of a community that's doing that together and to, to know you don't have to do that alone. And so these weeks, that's what we're doing. We're wrestling with God through pain and suffering. The reality that each of us goes through, has gone through, will go through, or will go through with people we love. We want it to be, as we said last week, a place where there is both honesty about this and hope, where there is permission to be like real about this, but also direction on where do we go with this as the people of faith, and how do we wrestle with God together? You're not alone in this. Now, um, what makes the wrestling uh, even more difficult are the words that we say, that I've said, or that we hear, that I've heard, or sometimes even that we sing. And can I give you some specific examples of words that I think we say or we hear they're supposed to be helpful, they're supposed to be encouraging, they're supposed to be clarifying, um, but they often have the opposite effect. Words like, um, everything happens for a reason. We say, oh, everything happens for a reason. Or perhaps we say things like, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. We say that as a, as a means, as words of encouragement. Or perhaps God has a plan. Or maybe this one, God is in control. We say these words to encourage, but oftentimes they can be discouraging. We say these words to give hope, but sometimes they bring despair. We say these words to help, but sometimes they can hurt. Why? Because when we say, well, everything happens for a reason, what we're kind of saying is, hey, this terrible thing, don't worry, or uh, there's probably a good reason that if you heard it, you would say, okay, I'm glad this terrible, traumatic thing has happened to me. And we think, really? Right? As, not just as feelers, right? As feelers, we kind of hear these statements and we think, oh, I guess that's true, but something doesn't feel right about that. Or even as a thinker, it's like, okay, logically, I guess that's true, but that makes me ask this right? If everything happens for a reason, there's a reason that I would somehow feel good about this. I don't even know what that would be. And God has a reason for that. Or perhaps <clears throat> when we say God won't give you more than you can handle, kind of what we're saying is, hey, God gave you this and you have to handle it. And if you're not handling it, that means you don't trust God or you don't believe him or somehow you're accusing him of wrongdoing, but that doesn't feel right. And is that really true? When we say God has a plan, what we're saying is that thing, this thing that you are being hurt by, that your loved one is being hurt by, that you wish had never happened, this difficulty, this feel, that thing that feels too much to bear is a part of God's plan. Don't you want God's plan for your life? Are you saying God doesn't have a good plan for your life if you don't believe that it's part of his plan? And it can cause hurt and damage and wrestling and confusion. 
And when we say God is in control, are we imagining God at the control room of the universe saying, you know, kind of earthquake here, or this stock is going to go up today and we'll send that one down, and this person's going to lose a limb, but don't worry, they'll win a gold medal, and so it'll be a good story in the end. I'm not being sarcastic, and I hope you don't feel like I'm being careless. I am being honest. <laughs> Because I know these are things that I have said and these are things that I have heard. And in fact, I know at times they can be helpful, but at times they can be confusing. At times they can be discouraging. At times they can be hurtful. And I've experienced that. And I know as I've talked to many of you, you've experienced that. Because where this leads us, I think, is to a dangerous conclusion. That we might conclude God is not just the author of good, we would conclude he's the author of evil. Or that we might conclude that you and I are just robots, automatons, powerless uh, in the story and the plan that God is working out no matter what, we just have to accept it. Or that even worse, that the foolish and selfish and evil choices of other people and the brokenness of this world are somehow good things and purposeful in and of themselves. I, for one, am not willing to accept those conclusions because I do not believe that is what Scripture tells us about God, about our world, about suffering, and about us. But we got to peel the layers on this because they sound true, they sound right, and maybe, we've, maybe you've felt like, oh, I'm supposed to believe that or I'm supposed to find encouragement in that. What's wrong with me? Well, we turn to, again this week, one of the books that we are reading through uh, as we've started a new Bible reading plan in the wisdom uh, section of the scriptures, five books that are called the wisdom books, and one in particular called the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the people of God. It's part of the Hebrew Bible. It's the prayer book of the people of God, where the poets and songwriters wrote and gave words, not just for themselves, but to the people. And I want, to, want you to listen to this Psalm in particular, that reveals someone wrestling with God. That's often what we're going to be looking at in these scriptures through these weeks. And someone living with or going back and forth two realities that he holds to be true, and he doesn't know how to reconcile them. And I want you to listen to how he describes his own experience with pain and suffering and tragedy and loss and what that meant for how he thought about and how he spoke to God. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed, with hands lifted towards heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You do not let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. 
I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. O God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome powers among the nations. I wonder if you noticed from this, the writer of this psalm, wrestling with two opposing realities that he's not trying to resolve. He's caught between two realities, two things which he knows are true and real, but which seem to be opposite from each other, and he's not trying to resolve them. He's not trying to find something simple to bring them together. On the one hand, he's very clear that he's crying out to God for help. And in fact, we get this sense of him continually crying out to God and saying, it doesn't seem like God is hearing me. He is kind of leaving me alone in this. I don't feel like he's listening and he doesn't seem to be helping. He's honest about his suffering. He he says even in, in this translation, the NLT, right? Like either God's forgotten me like, has he forgotten me? Or he's just slammed the door on, on, on his compassion, right? Like either way, whether this is a passive act of God or an active act of God, I don't know what to do. And he's being real about it. He's saying, and he's talking to God and to his listeners about this reality. He's very honest about this one reality of his pain and suffering, that he is not softening or, you know, and saying, oh, but I understand it. He's saying, I don't get this. And this is my reality. And so he, in the one hand, he cannot stop thinking about and feeling his pain. <laughs> and then he says, but I cannot stop thinking about how good you are. I remember when you did this. I remember when you did that. I remember your faithfulness. I remember your provision. I, it's like he's two totally different people in this one prayer, in this one song. He's real and honest about stuff that is happening that he's going through that is, that is almost too much to bear. He said, I can't, he said, I'm too distressed even to pray. You ever felt like that? Like, I don't even have words. I am so upset. I am so anxious. But I can't stop remembering how good you are and how faithful you are. Here's the thing. He does not come to a conclusion. He doesn't reach a con- Read the rest of the psalm. He doesn't get to the end and go, oh, but God has a plan. Oh, but everything happens for a reason. Oh, but you must not be giving me more than I can bear. He's already saying, this is more than I can bear. I can't even speak. And where are you? You've slammed the door on me or forgotten me. He doesn't try to come to a conclusion or resolve these things. He lives in the tension of two things he knows to be true, but he doesn't quite understand either of them or how they meet in his life. He feels the tension. Can you feel it? of two realities that he lives between that no pithy statement can fix. No quick quip, no verse of the day can fix the realities he's living between. What you're going through is terrible. You've been crying out to God. He's not answering you. You're even tired of crying out to God. You don't know how much more you can take and he doesn't seem to be helping. Yes. And you cannot stop thinking about how good God is and how he has provided and, and that his deeds are, are wonderful, like, like they're good and that they're powerful. This is what you can't stop thinking about? Yes. <laughs> That's the tension, friends, of wrestling with God. 
where we have one eye on, on the reality of our lives and our friends' lives and our loved ones and this world we live in and one eye on God, and it causes attention. In a sense, this is the hardest part, right? It, it's, it's like the added pain to the suffering and pain. To some degree, if God was out of the picture, we wouldn't have that pain. But because we have the pain of what we're going through, but we're also trying to follow God and trust in him and pray to him like this writer is, it introduces a new kind of pain and tension in our life where we, to- we feel torn between faith and doubt. We, we feel torn between hope and despair. We feel encouraged on one side and discouraged on the other. That's the tension we feel. And can I suggest this? Because I, I know this is true for me, and I think it might be true for some of you. The reason we want to say something quick and pithy to ourselves or to each other, God's got a plan, or God won't test you beyond what you can bear, you know, um, uh, everything happens for a reason. God is in control. The reason we said it is because we want to relieve the tension. We don't know what to do with the tension. We want something quick and simple to explain it or get rid of it for ourselves. Or sometimes if we're honest, we don't like living with the tension that others are bringing us into. Their wrestling, their doubt, their honesty in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, friends, family who are going through hard things. We are tired of living in the tension with them, so we just want them to stop. And so we say something that appears to be loving or faith-filled, but is actually just a way of trying to fix the tension and get out of it. (laughs) But the scriptures won't let us do that. I think the question we ask, and that we can get a little bit of a clue from in this passage, but in the scripture as a whole is, where is God in the tension? Where is God in the tension? What's interesting is that the psalmist, the psalm writer here says he's directing his prayers to the Most High. It was a common name that the Hebrew people used for God. God, the Most High. And in a sense, it's like a picture of like, we're looking at the one who's way up there over it all. And that's true about God. But can I just say that the psalmist here has an incomplete picture of God? Yes, he sees God as the Most High. But we, you and I, we have a more complete picture of who God is. (laughs) Because God did not stay up there, the Most High. Our God came down low. Right? The psalmist, he doesn't know Jesus (laughs) as God. He only knows God from up there. But the writers of the New Testament, in fact, Paul in his letter to the Philippians says, Jesus left everything he had from on high and came down, made himself low taking on human form, becoming one of us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. In other words, we get a complete picture of God through Jesus. And our picture of Jesus, what we know of him through the four biographies we have of his life in the New Testament, and all of the writings, the letters of the early church writing about the life of Jesus, begin to tell us, where is God in the tension? Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? And in through his life, we actually see it up close. But before we talk about how exactly we see Jesus' life up close, and what does it tell us about living in this tension of pain and suffering on the one hand and a good and powerful God on the other, we want to do what we're trying to do every week during this series, and that's just pause to reflect and to allow the, the presence and reality of Jesus in the midst of our pain 
to not just be something we know in our heads, but to feel in our spirits and our minds. The uh, sculptor Guido Giletti in uh, the 1950s made a sculpture of Jesus uh, with his arms out wide, reaching up, kind of like a picture, like we would expect God, all-powerful, the Most High, arms outstretched. In fact, there's one in, in Brazil, the Cristo Redentor, right, that sits above the city. Well, Guido Giletti made his own sculpture of bronze, of Christ with his arms stretched out. But he did not put it on a mountain, on a hill. He did not put it on the top of a building that everyone can see. He buried it in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Portofino. And he called it Christ of the Abyss. Christ of the Abyss. That is the first thing, in a sense, we need to remember and know about the God that we see clearly, the God that Jesus came to show us, that he's not just on high, he's down in the depths with us. But it's not the only thing we see from Jesus when it comes to trying to understand pain and suffering and loss in our life. If you actually look at the life of Jesus, and this is why it's so important to read his biographies, and not just look for one verse here and one verse there, to look at how he lived in this world. And one of the things you will find is Jesus, part of the reason for Jesus' pain and suffering was that he lived in a broken world. The world Jesus came into was broken, just like ours. And Jesus was affected by it. The scriptures tell us he was poor. That, that, that was just the reality of his life. He didn't even have a home at once he went to begin teaching everywhere. He didn't, he didn't have a source of income. He didn't have a home. His father died early, you know, when he was still relatively young. And so he was trying to figure out how to care for his mother. We even know on the cross, he was trying to figure out who's going to look after my mother now that I'm dying. These are the realities of him living in a broken world. Um, he lived under an unjust system in the Roman Empire. He felt the effects of a 95% taxation system. He also felt it close to home as he had lost loved ones. His cousin was murdered his cousin John the Baptist, and he felt that Jesus had pain and suffering. He didn't go, go around saying, ever, when he heard about his, his, um, his cousin being killed, he didn't say, oh, God has a plan. He withdrew. He got away by himself. There were times when people were suffering, and he was moved to tears. He was crying. He wasn't saying, hey, don't worry about all this. Everything's going to be fine. Jesus didn't quote those sayings. He felt the effects of living in a broken world. But Jesus also suffered because of the foolish, selfish, and evil choices of other people. And he suffered because of the power of the devil, the enemy, in the world he lived in. And he didn't just say, oh, this is all part of God's plan. He felt the effects of the choices of other people. In fact, if you look at the cross of Christ, as Jesus is moving towards his final days, you will see that he felt the pain of betrayal by one of his closest friends, and abandonment by the rest of his friends, and that he, he felt as he was suffering trying to get through this. And in fact, he wasn't saying, oh, it's all going to be fine. He's saying, God, is there no other way? Um, if we want to say, oh, God won't give you more than he can, that we can bear. Jesus was saying to God, this is too much. And on the cross, he wasn't crying out saying, God, you're right. I can bear this. He said, God, where are you? You've forsaken me. In fact, he was quoting some of the Psalms on the cross, those Psalms that are like this, that's saying, where are you? The scriptures tell us he was crushed by the cross. He was killed, executed. It was more than his body could bear. 
Jesus himself experienced that because of the selfish, foolish, and evil choices of other people, wickedness, injustice, jealousy, fear. And the scriptures tell us part of the reason that Jesus was betrayed and killed was because of the work of Satan, the power that he exercised. It says, it says that Satan entered Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, to inspire him to betray Christ to his death. So we know these were all things at work in the life of Jesus. Do you know what some of the, of the writers of the New Testament describe the devil as? They call him the God of this world. They call him the ruler of the air. I mean, those are terms that we would think apply only to God, but the New Testament writers seem to say, no, Satan has power in this world. Satan is exercising control over things and over people. So if you look at the life of Jesus, yes, we see Jesus exercising God's power, but we also see individuals exercising their free will, their control in decisions that were good and decisions that were terrible, in decisions that were selfless and decisions that were selfish, in decisions that were good and decisions that were evil. We see human beings exercising their control and doing things that God did not want them to do, but they did it anyway. In fact, times when Jesus was discouraging them from doing it, trying to convince them not to do it, and they did it anyway. He was warning them, don't go down this road, and they chose, and God's power did not stop them. They exercised their power, they free will, and we see the enemy, the evil one, exercising his power and his control as the God of this world, as the ruler of the air, doing what he wanted to do in his will to destroy Jesus. Friends, the reason, sometimes the reason you and I are going through what we're going through is because we live in a broken world. Sometimes the reason is because other people have made choices or we have made choices that are selfish, foolish, or evil. Sometimes the reason is because there is an enemy of God and the enemy of the people of God who has power and control in this world and exercising it against us and against Christ to destroy what is good. Sometimes that is the reason. But look more closely at the cross, friends. On the one hand, and I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, the cross of Christ is history's greatest tragedy that someone as beautiful, innocent, loving, and self-sacrificing as Jesus. Like you read his biographies, all he was doing was loving other people, caring for them, giving them of himself, that his own people would choose to kill him, that his own friends that he had helped would choose to abandon him, that one of his closest friends would choose to betray him. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ so shows us just how ugly and powerful human choices are, just how powerful the devil is, and just how broken our world is, and how powerful the systems of injustice. Jesus was a victim of injustice. He was a victim of abuse. He was a victim of abandonment. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us just how much control and power there is in the devil, and the world, and the systems, and the brokenness of the world we live in. It does. But at the same time, that same thing that is the mark of human sin and selfishness and evil is at the same time the thing that God used to cleanse, forgive, and save you and I. <laughs> the cross itself is the tension between 
pain and suffering and the reality of human sin and the brokenness of this world and the power of the evil one and God's goodness and power to use this evil for our good. So what that means is that you and I have hope even in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our tragedy and our trauma. As we cry out to God, we remember <laughs> that we are not just praying to the God most high up there, but we are praying to the God who is down here with us, that if you look beside you in the pit, he is there. As you look beside you in that hospital room, in this place of pain, in this difficulty in your home, in this sickness in your body, in this brokenness in your workplace, in the loneliness that you feel, that Christ is lower still. He is right there with you. You are not just praying to the God on high. You are praying to Christ who is with you. And you can hear him say, I'm with you. I am underneath this burden with you. I have come down to where you are to lift you up. <laughs> and we can pray, God, if you use the cross, humanity's greatest uh, picture of greatest tragedy, selfishness, evil, and pain, if you use that for my good, then you can use this also. You can use the thing I'm going through. You are not the author of pain and evil, but you can use whatever was intended for pain and evil, whatever is a result of even just living in this broken world, just like you use the cross. So God, do that for me in my pain, in my suffering, in my grief. And so where does that leave us? I think just a couple of practical things as we, as a community, wrestle with God together. Can I just say this? Don't say things from on high to people when they're suffering. Get down in the depths with them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes the, oh, God is in control. God has a plan. God won't test you beyond what you can bear. Everything happens for a reason. Those are statements from on high. We're distant from others, and we're just throwing out things from on high to somehow relieve their tension or relieve ours. Don't do that. Get down in the depths with people. <laughs> do what Christ himself did. The Most High came down into our world, into our human situation, into our shoes, close to those who were suffering, close enough to suffer himself. Don't say things from on high. Come down to the depths with each other. Because that, that, that move is actually going to help people feel safe and feel like they can trust you <laughs> and feel like you are there to walk with them. But secondly, in the midst of your pain and suffering, as you are crying out to God for yourself or for your loved ones, boldly, yes, boldly pray, God, change this. You can do that, but also add this to your prayers. God, use this. God, use this. You used the cross, the ugliness of sin and selfishness and evil. You used it for my good. So while I'm praying for you to change this, I'm also praying for you, God, use this. Here's what I've observed in my own life and in the lives of many of you that I've gotten the privilege to walk with. The people who get down in the depths with others, who don't just say stuff from on high, but get down in the depths with others. 
the people who learn to not just pray change this, but God use this. Do you know what happens to us when we do that? When we get down in the depths with others, when we begin to not just pray God changes, but God use this, <laughs> we actually become free from bitterness, despair, hopelessness, fear, anxiety. We become people more at peace, more loving, more gracious, more helpful to those who are in the pit, more at peace when we ourselves are in that place. And as a community, we become that to a world <laughs> that is living under enormous pain, brokenness, suffering, and loss. The more we come down into the depths, the more we pray, not God, just, not just change this, but God use this. We become people of peace and hope and life.